Today's scripture reading is Matthew 8, 1 through 17. Uh, That's in page uh, 962 in the uh, Pew Bibles, and it's also here behind me. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift gift of Moses commanded as testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. That one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him. And he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmaries and bore all our diseases. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 8, that passage we just read. Whenever we... uh, get a chance to make it back home to Nebraska and visit family. Um, I always tried to connect with my friend Steve Allen. I've told his story to some of you before, but Steve and I grew up together. Uh, we were in swing choir together in high school and drama. Uh, we owned a painting business together. Uh, we, were, we actually came to faith together uh, back in 1996. We were involved with the Navigators uh, College Ministry together. Uh, We were in each other's weddings just two weeks apart. Um, We both ended up in pastoral ministry. Steve is a campus minister with RUF at the University of Nebraska. Uh, Few people, a few friends have ministered to me as deeply as my friend Steve. And part of his ministry is the love that he and his wife, Jen, have for their children, and specifically their daughter, Amelia. 
while Steve was studying at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and I was studying at Wheaton Grad School, uh, we took a weekend trip down to go see him and his family. Amelia, their daughter, was about three months old, their oldest daughter. Uh, She was about three months old at the time, and she had a cold that she had had for about a month and just couldn't seem to shake. And uh, about a week after that, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Four, four rounds of chemo killed the cancer. And today, she's six years old and is cancer-free. But during the fourth round of chemo, a virus settled in her brain and destroyed it. Destroyed Steve and Jen's dreams of the so-called normal life that we all think of when we have our children. Um, her brain damage was severe. She is a beautiful girl, uh, but her life is not like most children. She's confined to a wheelchair. Uh, she is able to communicate, but not with her mouth or with her hands, but by the direction that she looks with her eyes. Um, uh, just three weeks ago, as I'm standing in Steve's kitchen, and you see the, the mountain of plastic syringes laying on the counter drying, all the syringes for the medicines and the feedings. And, you know, I think about the two or three little Tylenol syringes on our counter drying at home, and I was just struck again by how consuming and unrelenting something like disability can be in someone's life. And their journey, uh, kind of think of it as wading out into the ocean and being caught in a barrage of waves. And that first one knocks you off your feet and... and by surprise, and before you can catch your breath and, and regain your feet, you're hit by the next one, and then the next one, and so on. Amelia is a beautiful and very beloved girl. They wouldn't exchange her for anyone. They can tell you stories about how God has used her life already in so many ways to change so many people. And yet that disability that she lives with is a daily reminder that the world does not work the way that it's supposed to. That her pain, her suffering, it's not the way that this world is supposed to be. And all of us live with some reminder of that in our lives, in our own stories. Whether it's our our own physical pain and disease or illness or sickness or, or whether we're the caregiver for someone so affected uh, a sick child or spouse, an aging parent, or whether we support and grieve with those who are so affected. The thing about sickness and disease, despite the incredible medical advances that have been made in the last century, let alone the last decade, uh, despite the fact that as a country we spend $2.6 trillion a year on health care, The thing about sickness and disease is that no one's actually immune from it. It affects all of us, and eventually it takes all of us. It is one of the unrelenting marks of the fall back in Genesis 3. That not only the the spiritual, but the physical decay that spoils this world. And yet, the promise of Scripture is that there will come a day 
when the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's Isaiah 35. A day when God will wipe away every tear. From our eyes there will be no more death or pain or mourning anymore. For God will have made all things new. In Revelation 21. That's the hope of new creation. That is one of the promises of God's heavenly kingdom in the end. That all of the covenant blessings of life and health and abundance that we read about throughout the scriptures... All of that is going to be finally and forever true of God's people when his throne is firmly established in the end. It's the hope we all look forward to. And yet, when we look at our passage here in Matthew's Gospel and the rest of the New Testament, one of the things that we see is that this kingdom that God has promised for the end... Jesus is already beginning to establish in the present through his life, death, and resurrection. There's an already and a not yet aspect to God's kingdom, to his rule and reign over this earth. Jesus will complete that kingdom when he returns. What we sometimes, uh, we sometimes say he will consummate God's kingdom. But what we see in our passage this morning is that he's already launching or inaugurating that kingdom through his life and ministry. And one of the ways that he signals that it is present among us is through his miraculous healings. As king of heaven and earth, Jesus has the authority to heal disease by making our sickness his sickness as a sign that he is making all things new. That is an incredible hope. And that's what we get to think about this morning in Matthew 8, 1 through 17. So please pray with me as we look at this passage. Lord, we want to hear your voice this morning. We need to hear your voice this morning. Lord, this world is broken and all of us feel it in so many ways. And the greatest sign of its fracturing is the distance between us and you. Thank you that Christ has overcome that. God, may we see what that looks like this morning in your word. And may we respond with faith and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we have been, uh, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, which is the first book in the New Testament, and, and together with Mark and Luke and John, it tells the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, of his ministry, and how he is establishing God's kingdom. Uh, one of Matthew's chief concerns throughout this book is that we would recognize Jesus as the long-awaited king of heaven and earth. So last week we finished uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And in that sermon, Jesus laid out his vision for life in his kingdom. What it ought to look like. A life marked by devotion to the Father and dependence on him through Jesus. A life that displays the Father to each other and to the world. Uh, It's not something that we can do on our own. 
Yet it is something we're called to obey through faith in Christ and the power of His Spirit. The Sermon on the Mount gave us Jesus' authoritative words as God and King. And so now as He comes down from that mountain in chapter 8, we begin to see what His authority looks like, not just in word, but in action, in what He does. And our passage gives us three portraits of Christ's authority over sickness and disease. Three stories of Jesus' miraculous healing. And each of those is a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking into this fallen world. That Christ is making all things new. So if you think of a, of a sign along the road, like a, a restaurant billboard or something, that signals to you that something good is ahead. You know? But imagine if, if in seeing the sign, you could also taste the meal at the same time. You know, or, or maybe think of uh, the samples at BJ's. You know, you get to taste in advance what that meal will be like when you buy it and take it home and make it. It's like an appetizer or something. The healings and miracle stories of Jesus that we read in the Gospels are signs that people can taste. They are telling you something better is just down the road, and I'm giving you a taste of it in advance of what we all look forward to in the end. And so our passage gives us three of those signs, three of those stories. And the first one is in verses 1 through 4, the cleansing of the leper. So look at uh, verses 1 through 2 with me specifically. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So... What kind of sickness are we talking about here? Uh, what is leprosy? Now, that word can refer to a wide range of, of skin diseases, but leprosy itself, uh, one author writes, like HIV or AIDS today, leprosy in ancient Israel was the most dreaded disease. It's a contagious skin disease that not only affects the skin, its color and texture and odor, and the throat, causing a raspy voice, but it also slowly destroys the nerves that sense pain in our bodies. And so lepers often lost the tips of their fingers and toes and broke limbs because they couldn't feel the weight of something, or they couldn't, you know, something heavy, or the heat of the fire, or the cut of the knife. And so the problem with leprosy was not just the physical decay of the body, but that that it was extremely contagious and that it made you ceremonially unclean within Israel. Uh, Leviticus 13 describes the circumstances. The leprous person who has the disease shall, shall wear torn clothes and let his hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So the man that comes to Jesus that day, he suffered not merely from physical disease, but from social isolation as well. He was an outcast with a slow death sentence. So having heard of Jesus' ministry, he now comes to him. He kneels before him and says, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. And notice the posture 
of humility and the language of faith there. He doesn't say to Jesus, if you can do it, make me clean. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He doesn't doubt Jesus' ability. He doesn't demand his grace either. He comes in faith and humility. And and note that he asks not just for healing, but for cleansing. You You can make me clean. That's not less than healing, but it is more than healing in this story. Because it means not just the restoration of his body, but the restoration of his life to Jewish society, of his life of being able to go to the temple and worship the Lord. What Jesus does next had to be shocking, not just to uh, the leper, but to everyone watching. Verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. You don't do that. You don't touch lepers. That's how you get the disease. That's how you become unclean. Imagine the shock of the crowd as they see his hand going forward. Imagine the emotion in the leper to feel the warmth of human touch again after years of not being able to. Jesus didn't have to touch the man to heal him. We see countless stories of just with a word, he says it and it happens. But Jesus loved the man. So he touched him, and he healed him. Immediately, he was cured of his leprosy. Jesus' kingdom is beginning to sprout on the earth. Verse 4 is interesting. Jesus instructs the man, having now been cleansed, to to go to the priest and to offer the the proper sacrifices according to the law of Moses as proof to them of his cleansing, which is in obedience to Leviticus 14. Now, after the cross, Jesus is going to do away with all of these kinds of sacrifices because he will have fulfilled their function in his own sacrifice and death on the cross. But until that time those sacrifices still point to him. And so he, he tells this man to, to go to uh, the priest to offer that sacrifice. That is the means of his cleansing and his re-entry into Jewish society, no longer as an outcast, but as a man. Jesus heals him as a sign that he has come to make all things new. That's the first sign in our story. The second one is in verses 5 through 13 and the healing of the centurion's slave. So look at verses 5 through 7 with me. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. Now, there are several remarkable things about this story here. Uh, First, it's remarkable that a Roman centurion, a Gentile, someone who's not of Jewish descent and therefore not of the covenant people of Israel, would come to Jesus, the king of Israel, and call him Lord, which is a title usually reserved for 
um, for Caesar in Rome. So that's pretty incredible. But second, it's remarkable that he even cares about his servant. Uh, you know, that he would go and seek Jesus out on his behalf since slaves were so often treated poorly and as mere property in that day. Jesus responds with compassion. He says, I will go. He will go and heal him. But what's most remarkable about this account is the centurion's response to Jesus. Look at verses 8 through 10. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes, and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. So what is this centurion saying? What is it that Jesus marvels at? It's not just that he recognizes his unworthiness before Jesus, though that is remarkable that he gets that. It's that the centurion recognizes that the authority Jesus has over sickness and disease is not unlike the authority he has over his own soldiers and servants and that Rome has over him. All you have to do is say the word and it's as good as done. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything. You give the command. You have so much authority over sickness and disease, it will obey. That is an incredible insight, isn't it? Wow. No wonder Jesus marvels and and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This guy gets the authority that I have as king. So his response to the centurion uh, is equally remarkable, I think. You know, before he, he actually responds to the request, listen to what he says in verses 11 through 12. I say to you that, that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is establishing God's heavenly kingdom. And, and when he returns to finish it in the end, and all God's people across time and geography are gathered together for that great celebration, what he's saying here is it's not just going to be Israelites invited to the party. Believing Gentiles, those, quote, from the east and the west here in his words, just like this centurion and just like most of us in this room will also be there all who receive Jesus as Savior and King. Just as God promised to Abraham long ago. Whereas those who refuse or reject Jesus as King, even from among his own people Israel, will be left outside the kingdom in judgment and death. Jesus has the authority to establish God's kingdom in the end. And in the meantime, he exercises that authority over sickness and disease as a sign that he's making all things new. So he says to the centurion, 
in verse 13. Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. The third sign or portrait that we see in our passage is in verses 14 to 17. And that begins with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and then moves quickly to a summary of all of Jesus' healing activity at that time. So verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came... Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. So note that there's, there's no request this time in this story. The first one, the leper comes to Jesus. The second one, the centurion, comes to Jesus. Here, there's no request. Jesus sees a need, and in his compassion, he answers it. And so dramatic and effective was his answer that as soon as he touched her hand, she got up and went about her normal activity of of being a good hostess. Now, some have raised the question, why these three stories? Now, why, you know, Jesus is healing all sorts of diseases, casting out evil spirits with a word. Why focus on the stories of a leper, uh, a Gentile slave, and a woman? Having declared his authority as king in the Sermon on the Mount, why doesn't Jesus just come down from the mountain and storm the temple? Or, or go and, and uh, you know, claim, go to Herod's palace and seize it and claim his throne by force, if he's really the king? Well, first, because Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom gained by power and oppression, but by compassion for the weak and the outcast. And that's who we have in these three stories of healing. The weak and the outcast. A leper, a Gentile slave, and yes, in that day, a woman who were often considered second-class citizens. Jesus doesn't go to the powerful. He goes to the weak. And second, because Jesus' victory is not going to come by taking life but by laying his own life down. Verse 17 tells us both why and how Jesus heals the people in these three stories. It says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. The portraits that that Matthew gives us of Jesus' authority and power to heal, signal that God is making good on His promise to make all things new through His Son, Israel's Messiah, who will give His life in our place. It's hard to watch someone that you love suffer. How many times when we're in that moment do we think or say, I would give anything to take their place? What verse 17 tells us is that Jesus gave everything to take ours. He is the suffering servant that Isaiah 53 foretold long ago. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. Yet what we see in Isaiah 53 and what lies behind our passage in Matthew 8 is that for Jesus to make all things new, like he's doing in each of these three lives, like he's going to do in the end for everyone, for him to do that, he has to go after the root problem. So, so to deal with, he has to deal with the reason that everything in life goes so dreadfully wrong. He has to deal with sin, with our rebellion against God. Now, we don't often think of sickness uh, in relationship to sin. The Bible does speak of it that way. Not necessarily uh, that, you know, the reason you caught a cold or, or that somebody is sick is because of some specific sin in their life. Um, God can discipline us in that way, but mostly what we're talking about is that illness and disease are a product of humanity's initial rebellion against God in the beginning, in the fall, in Genesis 3. When God made creation, he made it good. Bodies worked the way they were supposed to. Relationships worked the way they were supposed to. When sin entered the world, with it came the corruption of God's good creation, including the corruption and decay of our bodies. Romans 8 describes it this way. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So to undo the effects or the fruit of the fall, such as sickness and disability, Jesus has to go after the root of the fall, human rebellion and sin. He not only makes our sickness his sickness in his life and death, bearing our diseases, he makes our sin his sin as well. He offers to his Father his own perfect life of righteousness and holiness as our substitute in our place and takes on himself all the holy anger of God against our sin that he might free us from it forgive us and cleanse us and bring healing and wholeness to those who have faith. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace or wholeness was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the promise of Isaiah. And because Jesus dealt with the root of the fall on the cross, he's able to deal, deal with the fruit of it as well. To take the newness that his people look forward to in the end, and as a sign of that future hope, to break into the present with it. And bring healing to those who believe. Jesus is still king, by the way. And he's still able to heal our diseases. Even in this meantime, while we wait for his return. If we believe he's able to do it. 
Faith is central to the responses of both the leper and the centurion in this passage. Now, there is a line of thinking out there today, and the bookstores and the television shows are full of it, that says, since you're a child of the king, you should live like royalty. You should be driving the nice cars. You should be able to fit into that bikini whenever you want. You shouldn't have to even worry ever again about going to the doctor. And if you don't, then you must not have enough faith. We call this the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And I cannot stress too strongly how unbiblical, wrong-headed, and destructive is that line of thinking. The poison of the prosperity gospel is not only that it demands of God now what he promises for the age to come, and therefore completely lacks a theology of suffering. Now, uh, the fact that while we wait for Christ to return, we often share in his sufferings as, as a means of our own spiritual growth and as a witness and an example to the world around us. So it lacks that. But not only does it demand what God promises for the future right now, the poison is that it blames the existence of any suffering that you experience on your lack of faith. While the teachers line their own pockets with your money, generally. Why are you still sick? Why are you still poor? You must not believe enough. That's the line. And it's cancerous. It's deadly to spiritual growth. But the abuse of that kind of thinking shouldn't allow us to undercut the power and beauty of what God can do and sometimes does to bring healing to his people in advance when we seek him from a posture of faith. What does that posture of faith look like here? Well, in this passage, it begins with recognizing Jesus' worthiness as king and therefore our unworthiness before him. You know, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. It then recognizes that Jesus has the power and authority to bring healing. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Only say the word. So faith doesn't demand that he does it, but neither does it doubt his ability or desire to do it. It, faith brings the request to the one who has the power and authority to do something about it. It leaves the results in his hand, trusting the situation to his purpose and will, while praying constantly and believing wholeheartedly that if he wants to do it, he can and he will. It's a posture of faith. And sometimes God brings healing in immediate and miraculous ways, as we see in this passage. I was in the life of our own George Allegro. Uh, most of you uh, have heard George's story, and I'm hoping we can find a time soon that he can share it again, for those of us who haven't or, or who want to remember and rejoice once again in what God did. But according, by all medical standards, he should have never recovered from his cancer years ago. Not a chance. But God has authority and power over sickness and disease and will accomplish his will despite what any doctor says. Most of you uh, don't know that I was actually diagnosed with a small brain tumor in 2001. Uh, a benign meningioma, it's called. 
uh, a scan as I was graduating college and having consistent headaches and things. The scan revealed a you know small tumor about the size and shape of a quarter. And uh, when I went in for uh, a follow-up scan, it showed that it hadn't grown any, which was awesome. But when I went in for a scan a year later, it was gone. Just as we prayed God would do, he did it. And when I went in for a follow-up a few months after that, it was still gone. And a follow-up seven years later, it was still gone, such that the neurologist no longer believes it was there to begin with, even though we have pictures of it. Now, my life was never threatened by that tumor, but praise God for what Jesus has the authority and power to do in bringing healing to our lives. And sometimes he does that with immediate miraculous healing. Sometimes God's healing comes in gradual and slower ways, small steps. What a gift it was to be able to to dedicate Jackson Lynch this morning. You know, whom the doctors weren't sure whether he would develop the ability to speak and such. In the last six months, according to Jenny, he won't stop talking. (laughs) Praise God for what he does in answering prayer. What a gift it was to be able to hear an update from Bob this morning. Bob French, whom we pray for every week from this pulpit in his fight against cancer and to hear the story of what God has done to bring healing in his life right now. And still sometimes healing waits for the end. When Jesus returns, the resurrection that we all look forward to, when our own humble bodies will be made like his glorious body where we will all be made new there is a crown time coming for God's people God's new creation the completion of his kingdom but we still live in the cross time where sin and death and even sickness have already been defeated but they're still present among us while we wait for Christ's return We have confidence that if Christ is our king, if our hope and salvation is in him, then healing will one day come. Because Christ made our sin his sin and our sickness his sickness so that he could make all things new. That doesn't make the sickness that that we face in the meantime less serious and it doesn't make the pain any less real. But it does give perspective and hope. Amelia's mom, Jen Allen, uh, writes about their experience. We've had our share of suffering, according to most people's standards. I do not pretend to know why we suffer. There are many layers to suffering. I do know that it is painful and has brought a lot of grief, real grief, the kind that I can't ignore or fix, or buy my way out of, I have to sit in my grief, and in it cling to the one who sits at the right hand of God. The one who wept when his friend Lazarus died, who begged for God to allow a different way for our salvation than his own terrible death. The one who knew the pain of people misunderstanding him and rejecting him, going hungry, being beaten, and dying the worst death imaginable. He knows 
my pain. So how do I go on? How do I wake up in the morning, get dressed, and live life? Besides a lot of strong coffee, I know that this suffering is not the end of the story. Amelia's best days were not the first four months of her life, when all seemed, quote, normal. Her best days are yet to come. Not through the latest medical innovations, but through Christ. Her best days will be when she's dancing with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, right now you hear the cry of every heart that longs for things to be made new. You know the true story of every person in this room. All of the different ways that our lives are marked by the fall of this world, by things that don't go the way they're supposed to. You know the sicknesses, the diseases. You know the stress and the financial pressure. You know the weariness that comes from giving care 24 hours a day. You know that in all of that, our hearts are prone to wander from you. You know that amid that, some of us are crushed under it because we don't have hope in you. We don't know you. And you know what your word tells us, that in Jesus, he has done everything we need to bring forgiveness and reconciliation with you and wholeness and health to our bodies, in part now and fully when he returns. And God, would you give us that hope? And would it be with us throughout each day? Would that be a message of hope that can be on our lips as we share with others who are are weighed down under the brokenness of this world? And thank you, Lord, that you have not just brought relief from the physical effects of the fall, but that you dealt with the core of it. You dealt with our sin and our rebellion. Lord, thank you that even though we deserve the deepest pit of destruction for our treason against your heavenly throne, you in your mercy sent your son to take it on himself and to give us his righteousness that we might become your children and members of your kingdom. God, thank you for what you've done through the gospel. Lord, as we think about those among us who are hurting specifically, God, we pray for healing. We pray. You are the one who made these bodies. You're the one who knows how to make them whole. And so we pray for healing among us. We pray specifically, God, for Mary Boy and her battle against cancer, for Bob French for continued healing, for Steve Gerber, Lord, for Rick Brown, for others who deal with disability, Lord. I pray, Lord, for those who, who give care and for those who are, uh, whose lives are, are, are troubled by the inability to do things that many of us would, would simply take for granted as normal, and yet they're incredible challenges. God, thank you that you're with those who need you. We pray that you'd be with them in a special way and bring healing. And Lord, we pray for our missionaries as well this morning. God, thank you again for the French's and and their ministry 
in the Philippines and what you've been doing through them. Thank you, Lord, for Sheila Fabiano and her ministry in Angola. We pray your continued grace as they invest in, in pastors and, and ministers of your word there through their school. Lord, thank you that you are the king who has authority over healing, over sickness and disease, and that with a word, you can change our lives. And we pray that you would do it. And we pray that, Lord, you would give us grace in the meantime and faith and joy amid our suffering, whatever shape it takes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.